if you will, just remain silent while I read this uh, scriptural text. And then we've got something unusual. Romans 8, 31 through 39. Listen, if you will, to the word of God. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised? Who is at the right hand of God? Who indeed is interceding for us? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness, or danger, or sword. As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation, will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And to the reading of the word of God, let us all say, Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Now, I hope that you all have a bulletin. Because in your bulletin today, I know you won't believe it, there's a handout. Now, I understand that last week, when I was gone, when he knew he could get away with it, Don actually had the audacity to bring a projector and screen. And I just want to assure all of you, last week there was a projector and screen. This week there's a handout. That doesn't mean we're going liberal or anything like that. Trust me on this. Everything is, everything is fine. But if you will, in, that, in your bulletin, get out that little uh, handout that I've devised. And uh, I'm going to use that today. And there's a reason for that. If, the truth that I'm going to communicate today, I think is so important for you to understand, to get the joy that you need, the joy of salvation, that it almost needs to be visualized. And I think you can understand it better if you can see it. Everybody got that? So it's so important you need to take this home and, and to frame it. No, don't need to frame it. But keep it somewhere, or at least keep this, keep this idea, if you will, indelible um, in your mind. Uh, this month is, is a Holy Week, um, Palm Sunday, and Good Friday, and Easter. And I've decided, uh, I'm preaching this week and most of the weeks, Don's preaching uh, for us on next Sunday, we're preaching on the theme of redemption. So maybe we can call Holy Month. This month we're going to call it for our church uh, uh, Holy Month. Um, I'm preaching today, if you notice there at the top, on uh, the joy of, uh, of justification. And it won't be long, which is kind of, I'm going to give you a little introduction. I'm going to show you something that I believe the Bible teaches quite clearly, that what should inspire joy in your hearts, and, uh, and then we'll be done. But it's vitally important. I use that term uh, justification. It's kind of a long word, but Paul uses it. And it's one whose meaning we need to understand. But to understand it, I guess the best place to begin is perhaps in the Old Testament. Um, the ancient Jews 
understood the uh, judicial side of life. They understood how important it was to be justified. Another word for justified is uh, vindicated. They wanted to be, here's the expression, are you ready? In the right. In the right rather than in the wrong. Now, it's interesting, it's important to make this point because we don't think about things that way today, do we? Often, we have what sort of philosophers would call the inward turn since for the last hundred years or so. People are more concerned with their feelings. And feelings are important. They're more concerned, well, how do I feel about that? You ever see these um, athletic contests, baseball, football games, and afterwards, one of the announcers will come to someone and says, one of the athletes, and say, you hit a home run. How do you feel about that? Well, I mean, what would you answer? I feel great. I hit a home run. Well, the, the issue, that's a big issue today, how people feel. But to the Jews, that, that was important. But that wasn't the most important thing. To the ancient Jews who were schooled in the word of God, they were concerned most of all with being in the right. Am I right? Am I right? Am I vindicated? Now that term vindicated, though, hints at something that's found very clearly, we'll get to it in a minute, in Romans 8. It means that there like is an accusation or a charge. We use the term that way, don't we? Has anybody ever made some false accusations against you? And you felt later those accusations were proven to be false, and therefore you were what? Vindicated. Vindicated. That's kind of same word, basically, justified. Declared to be in the right. Declared to be righteous. You were vindicated. The Jews understood that. Now, you won't really, and this is a key, you won't really understand salvation in all its fullness unless you understand what it means to be justified. What it means to be vindicated. And that's part of what this passage is all about. Um, Now, this is a lost fact even in Christianity. And this is why justification is something that isn't preached much. People talk about being forgiven for our sins, and that's vital. Being born again, and that's vital too. But you won't understand the fullness unless you understand being vindicated. Now, here's the problem, and here's where we get into the text. Did you notice, please, if you have your Bible, notice, please, verse 33. It says, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Now, here's the problem. If we're going to be vindicated... What are the charges? Well, we won't turn there, but if you go back to Romans chapters 1, 2, and 3, you know what the charges are against Jews and Gentiles. And it's actually limited to one main scary word. The charge against Jews and Gentiles, according to Paul, in Romans 1, 2, and 3, when he's laying out this plan of salvation, is what? We're all in sin. That's the charge. We're all in sin. Now... I use the term vindicated or justified. Do you know, in fact, it's right in this passage, the word that is the opposite of justify or vindicated? If we're not justified, we are guilty, exactly, or condemned. Guilty or condemned. Now, there's no middle ground here. You are either justified, vindicated, or you're guilty and therefore condemned. Now, here, here is the problem. This is the wonderful problem to which Jesus Christ is the solution. You just read in this passage that we're justified. But you also read in the book of Romans that we're sinners and are condemned. 
how can somebody that is condemned and under God's judgment be justified? How does that happen? That's the key. Because the Old Testament already told us, and some of you, if you've read the Bible, you know this. God will by no means clear the guilty. And you know what he says, the Old Testament? He won't justify the wicked. Whoa, whoa, wait a minute. we got a big problem here. <laughs> We're sinners. And God is a just God. God is a righteous God. That's the point to make. Can God just... No, wait. Everybody understands God is just. God is righteous. Can God then look down at sinners and say, They've broken my holy law. They've turned their back on me. They treat each other unkindly. They harm each other. They hate me really in their heart. They basically do what they want to do. And they lie and they lust and all these other things. But, but, but. Since I'm God. And I'm a big and a great God. I can just kind of forget about it. Just still be nice to it. Now, do you know why God cannot do that? You say, well, wait a minute. Andrew, it's not. I mean, God can do anything. That's not quite true. God can do anything according to his nature, but God can't do anything without qualification. And if God is just and righteous, can he just say, oh, that's, yeah, that's sin. That's, that's, yeah, I understand. It's kind of bad, but I'm a big God, and therefore I'm just going to turn my back and not worry about it. No, God can't do that and still be God. And that's why we're condemned. And that's why, oh, now if you have your Bible, I just, you don't have to turn. Maybe you just want to listen to this, but you can't. This is the, one of the most powerful verses in the book of Romans. Romans chapter 3, verse 19. Oh, this is powerful. Now we know that whatever the law says, it means God's law, his moral law and his word. Whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. That means not just Jew, but Jew and Gentiles. The Jews had the written word, but the Gentiles have the revelation out here, and they have the revelation of God in their hearts. We know what's right and wrong. Whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world may be held accountable to God. Now, wait a minute. Do you see the judicial picture there? And let me tell you what it is. Basically, it's like a courtroom. And what would happen in the Jewish courtroom is it wouldn't be like ours when you had a big jury. Basically, there would be a judge, and there would be the accused, and the accuser, essentially three people. Maybe more, but generally three people. And so the accuser is in the courtroom looking at the accused, saying, you did this, and you did that, and you did this. And the accused person, particularly if he was innocent, he would open his mouth and say, you're a liar. I did not do that, and I was here at this time, and you're speaking falsely. Judge, this is not true, and I can prove it's not true. He was saying the accuser is falsely accusing him. Now I want you to remember what I just said though in verse 19. As we stand in God's courtroom, the law accusing us is accusing us. And how can we respond according to verse 19? We can't. It's like this. The law is accusing us and saying you lie and you steal, even stealing other people's time. And you lust and you don't care. And you're rebellious against me. That's what the law personified says to us. And we're ready to say. <laughs> and then we go. Because that's true, right? Aren't we all sinners? Say, well, I'm not really Andrew. I'm pretty good. No, you're not. No, you're not. Because even once you start thinking you're pretty good, that shows you're full of pride. Isn't that a terrible thing? You know what? Sin is... 
Sin is, has such a hold on us that only God can get rid of it. You know what I'm talking about? I mean, sin is a powerful thing. Have you noticed that? Sin, I mean, just talking with Don yesterday, he and I were, of course, being in the ministry, you, you, he was going to a particular place, and as I go to particular places, and there are problems that crop up. Well, sometimes they're sincere, but sometimes here and there, this, I mean, good people, and yet sin keeps coming up. Why? Because we're sinners. We're sinners. And we stand before God, and the law says, the law is our accuser, and it says, you have sinned. And we go, huh! guess that's right. Every mouth may be stopped, and we're all accountable before God. Now, having said that, we have a problem. If the whole world is accountable before God, if all the world is guilty, I'm going back to Romans 8, how is it possible that verse 33 says, who shall bring anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God who justifies. How can God justify? How can God say that we're righteous? How can God vindicate us if we've sinned and we stand under his judgment? Well, I quoted from the last part of Romans chapter 3, and then I came and quoted from the last part of Romans 8. What's in between those? Do you know what basically Romans 4 through Romans 8 tell us? What does it basically say? It tells us how we're justified. And how are we justified? Yes, by trusting in whom? If it weren't for the cross, if it weren't for trusting in Jesus Christ, there would be no way for, the, for Romans 3.19 and Romans 8.33 to meet. They can't meet. But they meet because of what comes in between. Now, having said that, oh no, by the way, before I go, just real quickly. <laughs> this, by the way, is why good works will never suffice. Good works will never suffice. Would you like to know why? We, can never do, we could never do enough good works to overcome our sin. And you know what else the Bible teaches? This is the scary thing. Even when it looks like we're performing externally good works, we're so full of sin that even the good works are tainted by sin. Isn't that a sad thing? Man, you say, Andrew, you're painting a pretty dim view of human nature. That's right. A dim view of human nature so that I can paint a beautiful view of salvation. Now, having said that, that's just kind of the introduction. Would you believe I'm almost done? Isn't that cool? Don't say amen. Now, look at that chart now. Look at the little handout. And this is the genius of the joy of justification. Um, look, first of all, at that first diagram. Now, as you probably have been able to figure out, this bottom line underneath it is sort of depicting um, the sequence of our lives as individuals. Okay? Sequence of our lives in human history. We're born and we get older and we die. And of course the arrow is moving. It's moving from the past to the present into the future. Now, notice there is a vertical bar there at the very end. Now, essentially, the many pagans and a lot of what we would call moralists, including a lot of liberals, hold this idea of judgment. Now, notice at the end it says the final judgment. Now, most people historically say, and everybody knows, that there's coming a time when we will have to reckon. You know what I mean by that? We'll have to give an account. Even the pagans that didn't really believe in the true God, they would acknowledge there comes a point where you have to give an account. A hint of that is there's a pagan idea of karma, which is what? What goes around comes around, man. 
That's just kind of a, a twisted, a, a perversion of this idea of the final judgment, though it kind of happens in history. There's a notion that many liberals have, and here, this is where the idea comes. Basically, at the final judgment, God is going to weigh all of your good works against your sins or your bad works. And if your good works exceed your bad works or outweigh your bad works, then you'll be vindicated. Then you'll say, oh, you are saved. Enter heaven. And then you would basically be saved by your good works. But we know according to Paul that's not possible. Why can't good works save us? Because we can never do enough good works to get rid of our sin. And even our good works are tainted by sin. Which is to say, we are royally in trouble. Royally in trouble. Now that, I say, is the pagan idea. Now, think about it for a minute. One thing that this leads to is that little word on the bottom, which is what? Anxiety or worry. Now, tell me why that is. If you have any sense at all, and most people know as they get older, the problem about getting older is you don't only remember the good things, you tend to remember all the people you've stiffed, all the things you've said. And it kind of, after a while, if you're not a believer in particular, or even if a believer, and you don't understand the fullness of the gospel, it kind of weighs on you. Now, looking at that top one, if it goes along like this and you're looking constantly toward that final judgment, you're filled with what? Very many. If you think about it, anxiety, is that right? You're thinking about, am I going to make it? What happens when I have to give an account? What's going to happen? I just don't know. And many people historically in various sectors of the church, they'll say, have I been good enough? Have I believed enough? Have I taken the sacraments enough? Have I done it enough? And as they get toward the end of their life, they tend to worry more and more because they know they're going to die and they're going to face God. Now, the problem with this view right here is not so much everything it says because doesn't the Bible teach a final judgment? Yeah, it does. Doesn't the Bible say that we must all stand before God? Sure. That's not the problem. The problem is that it's lacking something that is appearing in the second one, the Christian view. Would you like to tell me the only main difference on the line between these? Yes, sir. The Christian view has a cross in between. Thank you, sir. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's the difference. Now, here's what that means, and I'll tell you, and I'll conclude by telling you the wonderful joy. Um, Because we sin, we stand under God's judgment. God, because he loved this human race, sent his own son, eternal son, was born in Bethlehem, grew up a sinless life, was beaten, put on the cross, not as a martyr. Lots of people died on crosses at the time, tragically. It's more than just... The act of dying on the cross is as he was dying on the cross. God the Father, in his unspeakable love, nonetheless poured out his judgment and wrath on his own son in our place. There's a kind of a two-word description for this that's so important. It's called substitutionary, what's the next word? Atonement. And if you don't have that, you don't have the Christian faith. By the way. I hope I'm around a long time, but if you're ever in a church that denies substitutionary atonement, run. Because if you don't have that, you don't have the gospel. Christ substituted on the cross for our sins. 
And the Bible says in 1 Corinthians, it's the most wonderful. Of course, all the Bible is wonderful. He, God, made him, Jesus, to be sin for us, even though he didn't know any sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Basically, God took all of our sin and guilt and placed it on Jesus Christ as he was on the cross. And as a result of his death, it took all of Jesus Christ's good, holy righteousness and gave it to us. That is, those who by faith trust in him. And that righteousness becomes ours. Now, and that brings to the absolute bottom line. Now, somebody might be looking at this and saying, Andrew, you actually made a mistake here. Now, I see that you have on both of these the final judgment, because both understand the pagan view, the moralistic view, the liberal view. Both of them understand, in some sense, there's going to be a final reckoning, a final judgment. But then I see you come down to this Christian, this sort of Christian description here, and you say there's a final judgment here, but then you, you, is that a misprint in the middle? It says final judgment? The fact is it's not a misprint, and the fact that it's not a misprint gives us the entire joy of salvation. And here's what it is. Are you ready for this momentous thing? And it ain't momentous because I said it. It's momentous because the Word teaches it. And that is, for those who have trusted Jesus Christ, the final judgment has already happened. That is the key. You don't have to wait to the final judgment to be justified and vindicated. Now, did you notice in this passage, it says in verse 33, it is God who justifies It's not God who will justify. It is God who justifies. Therefore, you don't have to wait until the final judgment to get the final verdict. Don't worry, the final verdict over unbelievers and over us by sight, visibly, is coming. But justification by faith means we already have the verdict of God's righteousness of self in Jesus Christ proclaimed over us. Already have it. Here's the final judgment at the end of history. God basically takes the final judgment and moves backward into our lifetime and says, if you trust in my son, the one who gave himself on the cross, if you trust in him, all of his righteousness becomes yours. And therefore, because his righteousness is marked up to your account, you are judged to be righteous, and therefore I can declare over you vindicated. And so in the courtroom... As it were, in the courtroom, the law is accusing, and by the way, the law is not wrong. The Bible doesn't say the law is bad. The law can't justify, but the law is not bad. The law is right. You are guilty, and then God says, you know what? I'm going to declare not guilty because this person, my own precious son, he bore the entire penalty for their sin. And all of his righteousness I've taken and imputed it or marked it up to their account. And therefore I say to them, you're totally vindicated because of what this man did for you. You're totally vindicated. You're totally justified. Now the key is, you don't have to wait to the final judgment. And that's why notice on the bottom, it says assurance. Did you see that? No anxiety, but assurance. And now you understand why God the Father holds you in his hand, if you're trusting in Christ. You're in the hands of Jesus Christ and nobody can rip or snatch or pluck you out of their hand because you're vindicated. You're already justified. Now, say, Andrew, you forgot one little thing. Notice I have final judgment in the middle during our life by faith. Now, do we say, does Paul say in Romans, you are justified by sight? Well, no. He says you're justified by what? 
But praise God. You say, well, does that mean like there's going to be no verdict in heaven at all? No, the Bible's very clear about that. Just right now is in time. We're justified by faith. One day we will stand before God, whom we can't see. One day we'll stand before Jesus, whom we can't see. And we'll be justified by sight. It'll be declared publicly. Now we trust this by faith. God, you see, doesn't physically come down with Jesus and declare you righteous. You have to trust the word of God. That's justification by faith. But one day at the final judgment, you'll stand before God and will be justified by sight. And the whole world will know. Everybody standing before God will know that you and I are vindicated. Not just by faith at that point, but by sight. The great news about this is that that vindication or justification by sight is just as good as done now. And I will conclude by proving that to you in some verses we didn't read. Notice earlier in uh, Romans chapter 8, in verses... um, Here we go. Verse, um, let's start with 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. In order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Now get ready for this. And those whom he predestined, he also called... And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Now, final question. Do you know what in the Bible glorified means? Glorified means we've already been conformed to Christ's image. Glorified means we have the new resurrection body. Glorified means we're already perfected. How in the world can Paul then speak in the past tense? How can he do this? Only one way. We've been justified by faith, and therefore, for Paul, it's as good as happened. The French have a beautiful expression. French aren't good for much. No, I should say that. They have a beautiful expression. It's called a fait accompli. Do you know what that means? It's finished. It's an accomplished fact. It's all over. Yeah, you have to live your life, and yeah, there are difficulties, and yeah, yes, you have to pray and cry out before God, and yes, there are hardships, but in the mind of God... By faith, it's a fatah complete. And that's why Paul says, you're already glorified in the sight of God. And my friends, that is the joy of justification that we can live with. That the verdict that's going to be pronounced over us when we stand in heaven before God, that verdict has already been pronounced in the courts of heaven, though we know it now only by faith. And therefore, if you're trusting in Christ, you need never worry That's why all things work together for good to those who love God. Do you understand why he now said all things work together for good? Because understand understand that for Paul, that for believers, we're looking toward this final day, this final time, and our justification has already been accomplished. That's the great joy of our justification. And that should inspire us nothing but joy and assurance. I hope that you'll never forget this glorious truth, even if you lose this paper, and you probably will. You'll never forget that glorious truth that we have already been justified. Already. The final, for believers, the final judgment has already happened. For believers, the final vindication 
has already happened in Jesus Christ. Let us pray. I believe I'll have Bob Emery. Bob, will you pray that God inspires this truth and shows us the glories of being justified?